Hey, this is Dan with episode eight of Garage to Goliath Leaders Building Legacies podcast. This episode's interview is with Guy Wells, president and CEO of Wells Cargo in Las Vegas, Nevada. I met Guy while I was speaking at a Vistage Worldwide event in Las Vegas. I was very much impressed with him as a leader because he took over his family business and he was the first one in three generations to own it outright. I'm intrigued by him because he's been able to create an incredible company culture and people genuinely seem to like working there. And it's not sports or technology related, it's a paving company. When I met him, loved his energy, his attitude. He seemed excited about the company and about the future, which can be hard to do sometimes in changing markets and challenging times. I think his insight is valuable to you because there are a lot of family-owned businesses out there trying to navigate some of the very same things he's had to navigate, how to integrate kids into the company, how to care for aging parents. The company is 80 years old with many ups and downs, and now it's his turn to handle the ups and downs. So let's meet this unsung hero of good business, just trying to do good things for communities and society. So imagine getting to speak around the world, meeting the most successful, positive leaders, then getting to choose from that group. That's what my show is about, learning from the best how to be your best so that we can challenge ourselves to lead with purpose, impacting lives and communities. Hi, I'm Dan Quiggle, and welcome to the Garage to Goliath Leaders Building Legacies podcast, where we learn, lead, and leave a lasting legacy. So today I get to introduce to you Guy Wells. Guy is a third generation owner of Wells Cargo Inc. Guy's grandfather Howard and two great uncles started the company in 1935. Guy's father, Howdy, took over the company in 71 and the company is now under the leadership of Guy. What I love is this company wasn't just handed to Guy. He started working at Wells Cargo at age 14, working wherever he was asked. After college, he joined Wells Cargo as the paving superintendent, then moved on to be general superintendent, then president of operations, then executive vice president, and now president and CEO. Guy, for my listeners, tell us more about the company. Give us the two-minute or less elevator pitch on, you know, what do you do? Who do you serve? How did you create value for your community and society? And by the way, how did the name come about? Guy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan, and uh, happy Friday. Um, you know, as as, um, as as I reflect on that question, it's uh, uh, it it really came to be through through a lot of trial and errors, and and of course there were there were some mishaps um, in the uh, in the process, but. You know, in any in any family business, there's there's uh, there tends to be some uh, some good and and some uh, some delta in that, and, uh, and we certainly were no different. The name really came about when my when my uh, when my great uncle Joe um, uh, started the company with my grandfather. He bought one truck and hauled uh, uh, supplies to the lumber camps in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And he literally put my grandfather through school doing that. When my grandfather got out of college, they bought a second truck, and and that's so we started as a freight company, which is where the name Wells Cargo started from. Is is we used to haul freight, and we started hauling to the mining companies um, in in various locations. And at one point, they said, "Hey, do you guys want to um, want to take over the?" Uh, 
the mining operation uh, and do some contract mining, and and that's kind of that's kind of the catalyst that got us to where we are today, which is which is largely a, a paving, grading, crushing uh, asphalt manufacturer, and uh, uh, with within that. I, I don't know how far you want me to go with this, Dan. Well, well, no. I mean, I mean, so so paving, especially in Vegas. I mean, and you've been around for eighty years. So, I mean, have you paved a lot of Las Vegas? Oh yeah, yeah. We paved the original McCarran Airport. We paved the uh, we paved the Strip uh, at one point for a short period of time. We we owned the Thunderbird Hotel. Um, um, so yeah, we, it, the the history in Nevada for us and and surrounding states goes goes back many years. How exciting! What a great legacy. So let me ask you: can you can you describe for me and the audience in your own words, like how did you get to where you are today? Oh goodness, uh, tenacity <laughs> and 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 um, uh, ADD or ADHD. I'm afraid to ask the doctors which one I have, oh, but uh, but yeah, I mean it it's it's. Um, it, it was just it was a tenacity, and and here's here's what I tell people. When I was a little kid, I used to play with Tonka trucks. I had a little loader and a and a dump truck, and I just never grew out of it. So you know, I I just loved the equipment, and and what what and and again, it, it goes back. We we used to do a, a bigger variety of work, but um, but we really got focused on on paving. Uh, about six years ago because it was truly my passion. That's what I loved. And we get to take golden care of our customers. And, and, and to me, that's, that's key. And, and you don't always hear that in construction. Construction, you generally uh, think of as testosterone filled and, you know, big personalities, which, which, you know, we do have some of that, not going to lie. But at the same token, that it's really we gravitated towards our customers and really, really enjoying the people that we did work for, and making a difference in their life. Yeah, and I want to get a little bit maybe into um, why you switched just to asphalt six years ago. Later, um, you, you talked about your passion, and I love that, and I actually appreciate you bringing that up. So, what is your big why? Like, what motivates you to persevere even through the malaise and trying times? Like, why do you do what you do? What's your big why? My, my I, I guess sometimes that that's an interesting question again, Dan, uh, and, and it gives me pause for thought. That I, I guess my big why would be my vision, which is to create opportunities for those around me to become the best that they can be, and and that's that's really in my core to uh, to create that and and. The people that work here also know that that I'm not creating that for them to stay here. If if their if their bigger opportunity is somewhere else, and I was a catalyst to get them to that point, and it's it's at another company, I'm as grateful for the time that I had them here as as I am grateful that they found something that they get to go to that's bigger than what they had. So so that's probably my biggest why. And and for our customers, it's the same thing. If, um, if 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 in in our customer relationship they find that that somebody else serves them better or or is, or is more passionate about what they do on behalf of the customer, then I I, I acknowledge that and accept that and and uh, shake hands and move on. 
Guy, I, I haven't known you for that long, but I have a feeling that doesn't happen very often because I, I felt the passion to you when I first met you and, and then meeting your family. I mean, so I, I really, truly believe that you mean that when you invest in others because I saw it firsthand. You know, I'm always curious uh, because I love John Wooden, uh, coach from UCLA, amazing coach and leader from my alma mater. If other people deliberately think about their personal values, like John Wooden had this pyramid of success, right? And, and we talk about it all the time, loyalty, confidence, intentness, friendship, poise, competitive greatness. These are some of the words on there. What are your personal values and how do those values, how have they served you in life? <clears throat> Integrity, honesty, open communication, um, fun, above all fun. The, and, and one of the things that, that came to me late in life is... is uh, I used to think that that the more money I made, the more fun I would have. And what I recognized later in my life is is the fact that the more fun I have, and the people around me have, the 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 money is a result of having fun. So, um, and and one of our one of our core values that I share with everybody at the company is is make the right do the right thing, make the right decision, communicate, and don't make it about the money. And that may sound kind of awkward to some folks, but at the same token, if, if you do those in, in a reasonable order, if I make it about the money first, then the first three things can't happen. I can't do the right thing. I can't make the right decision. And I'm not communicating it because, because I've, I've transposed the, the, uh, uh, the natural progression. And, and that's something that, that has just served us very well. And everybody from top to bottom in the company knows that. On the money side, you think, well, you have to have money. Well, of course you have to have money. I'm not saying be ridiculous and throw the money away, but if if I'm focused on the money and I'm focused on change orders, I'm focused on on those kind of things, how am I serving the customer? How am I serving the public? How am I serving the community? So um, really, that's that's kind of the, the core, I think, of, uh, of my answer, Dan. Yeah, and I, and I do agree with that. I think that the money is a byproduct of all the other things coming together. And, and when you do care, when you do uh, create opportunities and give great service and you care, uh, show passion in the process, uh, great things start to happen. So definitely appreciate that answer, and I think my, my um, listeners will as well. So mo- most often than not, I think thoughts are a precursor to how we act and what we become as people. So what do you spend your days thinking about? What do you think about throughout the time? Well, I, I have to, I have to say that that one of my struggles is I spend a lot of time in the future, and and I say that's a struggle because when I'm spending time in the future, I'm not present for the people uh, that are here, um, uh, my my adult children who are now working with me. It's important that I'm present for them so so that they can ask uh, critical questions. It's it's also important that I'm. That I'm here for for my executive team, and and we have an open door. I have an open door policy, but so does everybody else. That anybody in the company, if they're if they're having an issue or circumstance, can can um, can come in and and visit with me on it, whether it's company related or not. But uh, um, yeah, being being present because I tend I tend to play I tend to play pretty freely in the future. You know, I talk a lot about that in my speeches, and, and I think it's probably one of the most impactful moments uh, when I w- look at the faces in the audience because, you know, sometimes we only have three hours in the evening. And 
you know, what do we do with those three hours? Are we on conference calls? Are we do we have our cell phones out? Are we watching a game? Or are we actually engage with these people? And and it's no different at work, is it? It's just you, you gotta be you gotta be present for them in the moment, whether you're at work, whether you're at home. And by the way, I think that brings the best out of all of us in the future. So we we literally then can feel better about being at work because we were good at home, or we're better, you know, at home because we were good at work. So I appreciate you saying that, and I think that's. I think everyone needs to hear that. Most often, uh, I think that you know we we kind of think about like what what's going to happen in the future though with our kids with everything else. So what keeps you up at night? I mean, you said you think in the future. You know, how do you deal with that? In other words, do you have any concerns for the future for America for your kids? Like, what are you interested in? There's there's always you know as 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 I play in the future, some of that some of that comes down to. Uh, some of that comes down to my kids. You know, what what's the future hold for my kids? What what's the future hold for our world and 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 our country? Um, and most, I don't know that anything keeps me up at night, Dan. To be honest with you, I I I, I sleep pretty soundly and and do my best every day um, to to be sure that I'm not that I'm not wrapped up in shoulda woulda coulda. Try not to shit on myself and and when I when I can. Um, so, I would I would just say that 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 most of that would probably come down to political uncertainty. We've we've seen some very uncertain times recently, and and uh, and certainly in in Europe and UK, that, and that concerns me. I mean, the the safety of the world um, and and the safety of our country are are probably the things that concern me the most. Well, that's admirable, and I'm sure a lot of uh, people share those same sentiments. You know, looking back, and I, I like this first part of, of what we're talking about to be about kind of learning and how we learn and things that we've learned throughout our lives. What one piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self, and why? <laughs> how much time did we have? <laughs> I love this one too, by the way. I love it's my favorite because you're like, there's so much I've learned. Like I would do some things differently, some things I wouldn't do at all differently. But you know, what what is so what one piece of advice would you give your twenty year old self? Well, what's really cool about that question is is I have I have twenty year old um uh kids in the business and it's probably the same advice that I give them um is is what I would take to myself. Find find somebody a mentor. Find find somebody that you gravitate towards, that's successful, and and pick their brain. Talk to them. Find out find out more more about their passion and their excitement and and what they have in their uh, in their core being. And then and then find that. I I kind of grew up in the family business, you know, from a Tonka truck up, and all that while while I was doing that. You know, there was some bumps in the road, and and I just overlooked the bumps. Don't don't get stuck on the bumps. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, life is a game that's meant to be played happy. You know, and 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 that's something that 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 I wish I would learn in my twenties. That whatever happens is going to happen. There are no accidents, and whatever whatever circumstance I'm in, just just enjoy the experience. I mean, good and bad is a label that we put on things. And, you know, you can take a, a bump in the road and say, wow, this is a great opportunity for me to learn something, or I can be stuck in the bump. And I used to be stuck, stuck in the bumps a lot. Yeah, I love that. And I'm sure that's great for your kids to hear on a regular basis. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to my son yesterday, 
and you know he just started working and he's in his first job and you know he said he had a, a tough day and I, I I sent him this saying and it said difficult roads often lead to beautiful destinations and and I just love that because it's so true I mean you know listen it's going to be tough times but don't take yourself too seriously don't let them beat you down uh, great advice love that answer guy so. You know, from a leadership perspective, and, and let's talk about this a little bit, uh, my goal in our time together is to give the listeners some food for thought on, you know, how to expand leadership excellence in their own life. So can you explain what is your personal leadership style or philosophy? Do you have one? How, how did you develop it? Mostly, mostly uh, uh, developed over time, um, to be honest with you. It, it um, you know, early early on, I... I, I, I had more of a temper than I care to admit, and as as we moved into that, I realized what didn't serve me and what did serve me, and what really serves me is 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 vulnerability and being open and and honest, which goes back to to the core of integrity and honesty, um, and and I would have to say, Dan, that that I've I've learned to lead from in front. Or lead from behind, but but I always I always look back to make sure that while I'm leading, that somebody's following me because you know a leader with nobody behind him is just somebody walking down a path. So you know I've I've learned to just to really le- lead from where I where I need to lead for the circumstance that 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 I'm in. Or um, it's it's interesting. Um, I don't know if I can use specific names here, but uh, Jamie Fox uh, did an article. And and he said he said it's very easy for me to walk into a room and and command the presence of the room. What he learned from that was to give up the room, and to to learn how to let somebody else be in that space and and to let them have the room. So so that was for some reason just very impactful to me, and and it and it taught me to allow other people to to take over the room. And and that's really when I lead from behind, and and then when circumstances get tough, uh, that uh, that I lead from in front, and I make sure everybody's in the in the right frame of mind to take on whatever task we have before us. You know, guy, that's interesting. I I was at a, an event, a dinner for twelve interesting people. How do you not say yes to that invite? And I was sitting next to a venture capitalist, and somebody at the table asked him. They said. All right, when you look to acquire a company, what do you look for? And you know, you know what he said, and I love this. He said, "We look for a CEO that's an I." Because we bring in a we leadership team and we make a heck of a lot more more money than I's do. And I really thought about that for a second cuz sometimes as a single leader, if if it is all about you, if you're commanding that room all the time, you know, then they're waiting on answers for you and you may be on a trip or you're in a meeting or something like that. When you empower people around you to, to like you said, have the room, I mean, there's a lot of great things that can happen. You can, I don't want to say completely get out of the way, but sometimes maybe you need to and let smarter people even take over and lead and do the job they're supposed to do. So I think that's great advice and uh, love that leadership style and, and even the description that you gave of it. So and you talked about optimism and that has always served me well in life. Uh, but I, I sometimes get feedback that people want more transparency into the hard times leaders face to inspire uh, them to be optimistic in spite of trials because they have, you know, encouragement knowing that others have trials too. So if you don't mind being a little transparent with my audience, what have been some of the hardest times for your company? I mean, how did you endure? What did you learn? Are, are you better because of the trials? Oh, my goodness. Um, 
Yes, and and one of the one of the biggest one of the biggest uh, learnings for me was to uh, uh, to surrender, Dan. I mean, and and when I sur- say surrender, it's not in the sense of of give up. It's it's surrender to the circumstance and and see the other possibilities around that circumstance. So so surrender, and and I still work on it. I'm not I'm not there yet for sure. Um, so, give me the question again. I got well, lost. Well, well, no, just just like what have been the hardest times for the company? How did you endure? And like you, you know, you say you kind of surrender to the moment, but you know, are you better because of that? Because of the trials? Like, just be transparent. And like, I know. Come on, you're you're a paving company tied to building industry in Vegas. Vegas has been up and down. Like, how did you deal with that? I mean, and by the way, most of the country has as well. But Vegas, you know, just like other cities, has been hit by that. Yeah, we 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 got hit in a big way, and and um, and really the you know there are so many beautiful lessons and beautiful things that came out of the uh, uh, the economic situation that that we uh, that we experienced, and and this goes for all companies. I I think that in my in my thirty years in business that 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 was the first time that I don't think there was a business that that didn't get some kind of a hiccup or some kind of a uh, lump on the lump on the head, and what what I brought out of that was was you know there comes times in business where you just have to do whatever it takes, and and in that in that time frame we did whatever it took to uh, to suck it up and and uh, you know I'm 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 a big fan of cowboy wisdom when you find yourself in a hole stop digging and and we had to we had to stop digging we had to stop. You know, we had to shut down certain divisions and and uh, and make significant changes, and that's really the beauty of that learning is what got me to where I am today. And I was doing things back then that, frankly, Dan, I just wasn't passionate about. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't invest myself in the in the in the operation, and so so that was my biggest learning. Um, uh, a buddy of mine was was with a guy, and and he said, you know, to create wealth, specify; to maintain wealth, diversify. And and for some reason, that that just that struck me right to my bones that that we were way too diversified and trying to be all things to all people and and do all these different things, and and really it put my ego in check because at one point, you know. We all want to be the biggest, the best, the greatest. Uh, you know, we want everybody when we walk in the room go, "Oh, wow!" You know, look at there's there's the biggest contractor in Vegas, and 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 I I had to put my ego in my pocket, and that was another huge learning, and step back and go, "What do I really love? What do I really like to do? What's really what can I really bring value to?" And and that's kind of what brought us to where we are today, Dan. You know, and and it's not easy. I mean, owning a title company in Florida. I mean, you know, two thousand five, two thousand six, you know, two thousand seven, going in two thousand seven. That was th- those were tough times. And you go from hero to zero very quickly when you go from hiring almost everyone you meet to firing almost everyone you have, and it's not easy. So that that ego thing uh, at, in check that that definitely I take heart heart with that because it was a challenging time for me as well. And. Um, I'm glad to hear that good things have come out of that. So, what is your strategy to effectively create a vision for the people and teams that you lead? I mean, how how do you how do you learn to effectively create a vision for others to follow? 
You're going to have to let me think about that one first. You know, so this is interesting, too, because we, we really, we created the vision and the culture. And, and really, I guess, you know, you talked a lot about our logo, and uh, when when I when I met with you, and and the the logo really came about from the rebirth of the company, and in that rebirth of the company, we created a new culture, and this was uh, six years ago, uh, maybe seven now. I start to lose track of time, but um, which is a wonderful thing as well. It it the the culture the culture shifted. It changed. Everybody that was that was. And the interesting thing was everybody that wasn't invested in the culture that started to to, to manifest itself quit. They they understood that they weren't that they weren't a good fit and, and they just they just left. They retired, they left and and the culture once it once it filtered down to the people in the field, it became it became self regulating. And and now we have we have some some really key guys that that are our laborers. I mean, to give you an example, our laborers. That if somebody new comes to the company, they'll look at them and they'll just shake their head to the foreman, no, and the foreman gets the guy's checks. So it's it's really it's a top-down culture that uh, that really makes a huge difference. And by the way, let, let's clarify that. So this logo, by the way, a cowboy hat with like a skull on the front of it, mainly. Ma- Probably the the coolest looking logo I've ever seen. I mean, I just loved it when I saw it, and that's why I made a big deal about it. And I took a bunch of pictures of it, and I'll, I'll make sure that I post those on on my website so that people can see them. Uh, but you know, it, it is interesting because you've got to be able to convey that vision to people. And I think I think after seeing some of your employees and meeting some of them and your kids and everything, there is a great culture in that company. And we're gonna, we're going to get into that a little bit more here shortly. But can you tell me a story in your life where you weren't leading well? And you said to yourself, "I have to change this thing so that I can lead better." Yeah, yeah, I can, Dan. I, and and I, I can think of a lot of di- different circumstances. And one I alluded to earlier, and that's and and that's um, uh, and and you talked about this too. And and it was it was my it was my way of being. And and you know sometimes. When I'd come into the office, I'd be super excited and hey, yay! And and that was too much for some people to take. It was it was overwhelming, and so so I had to I had to kind of stabilize my 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 leadership, if you will, so so that I didn't come across as so overbearing. And by the way, my wife experiences that too from time to time. Um, but yeah, to 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 stabilize and. And show up and be, and be honest with myself, but also show up knowing that I'm on stage and that everybody's looking. And every minute of the day I'm on stage, there was people in the, in the past that you know I'd come in and if I, if I didn't say good morning to every person or if I wasn't standing up straight enough or whatever, I'd come in my office and nobody would come and talk to me. Nobody was coming to see me. I'm like, hey, what's up? Oh, so and so said you were in a bad mood, and I'm like, what? Who said I was in? A, why'd they say I was in a bad mood? Oh, because you came in and didn't say good morning to everybody, or or you came in and and um, and you looked different. So, you know, from that standpoint, I had to learn that that 
every single moment of every single day I'm on stage. I get to be authentic in in how I show up, um, but I also get to realize that, you know, I don't get to have the same bad day that other people get to have. That stems from when I'm talking, you know, we're talking about getting out of the car and standing up straight and literally saying it's showtime it could, because it is. When you come in and you're in a bad mood, you know, people are like, oh, that's the way today's going to go. But when you come in and you're ready to win, that's the way today's going to go. And so I do appreciate that, that there's a realization there that these things matter because they do. So so keeping in line with this whole, you know, leadership side um, and, and talking about like even how we show up. Describe to me the one trait. If you had to pick one trait that you would have for your top people, what would it be and why? Fun and happy. <laughs> if I that. had to pick one, I'd pick happy. Happy. Yeah. And and I would I would say happy for everything that we've talked about, Dan, from the standpoint of 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 not only am I on stage, but but my key leaders at the company are also on stage to their people. So um, you know, we we hire literally for the culture. We don't hire for talent. We don't hire for, um, for the guy that knows the most because we don't, we don't want the bad apple in the bushel. Um, so we're very, very, very conscious throughout this whole process. If somebody, gets, somebody comes on board, that, that they are a cultural fit and they are, generally speaking, you know, happy people. We can teach somebody that's willing to learn. We can't teach them to be happy. Yeah, 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 I love that. Love that, and I and I agree with that to an extent because, uh, first of all, you know, and, and I guess not to an extent, but just in addition to, I mean, you you want people who are trustworthy and hardworking and good at what they do, but if they're not happy, it's like a cancer eating away into the body, and it will kill you and your organization until you cut it out. So you really do have to make sure that you have people that that you know want to be there, that enjoy it, that are that are engaged. Uh, you know, Reagan, President Reagan had a kitchen cabinet a group of trusted friends, advisors that he trusted to give him solid advice. I believe there is power in having successful peers. Who's in your kitchen cabinet? Um, let's see. Uh, Don Schmenka, who's also a, a, a Vistage speaker, uh, wrote a book uh, called High Altitude Leadership, which, uh, which was one of the foundational books for, for my leadership. And, and, uh, and he wrote it with Chris Werner, one of the uh, one of the top uh, uh, rescue climbers in the world, and and extrapolates really really powerful uh, visuals to leadership and uh, and um, uh, what would I call it uh, real real life experiences that that actually cause people in in those circumstances to die, which. You know, I also say there's all kinds of deaths in life. There's death of friendships. There's there's death of uh, uh, businesses, relationships, um, and and you know that just brought to life for me that that you know we always have to be paying attention and have to be aware as leaders how we show up so that so that we don't get the wrong people on the rope on the climbing rope with us, and and those people end up dragging the whole crew down. Which which goes back to the which goes back to the prior question as well, Dan. So I know you gave me a couple names, but describe the type of person or type of people you like to surround yourself with. Um, people that think different than I do. Uh, Bill Seifman, a close friend of mine. Jim White, another close friend of mine. Uh, Bill is in kind of a similar type of uh, of business as I am. Um, Jim White is uh, is is in. Uh, 
a completely different line of business, which is uh, uh, timeshares. And, and, you know, just interesting people that have elevated themselves or that think differently. Um, my, my good friend Billy Seifman uh, thinks completely differently than I do. And when I, whenever I run something by him, he, uh, he comes up with these answers that I'm like, whoa. Um, and there's a gentleman named Dan Quiggle that's in my kitchen <laughs> cabinet. I appreciate that. And, and, proud to, and proud to be, by the way. Well, well, thank you. And uh, people, people that are free thinking, that are vulnerable, that are successful, and and you had mentioned it, and I and I'd heard the analogy before that that you become, you become. Uh, I think you said uh, you become the person, or you become the average of the top five people that you spend the most amount of time with. Well, I mean that's I I didn't get that until probably ten years ago, Dan. Maybe maybe fifteen years ago. And when I did get it, it hit me in the forehead like a cannonball. Yeah, and especially you know when you go to take over the company, and now it's it's your decisions that are are you know guiding on a day to day basis. And and I think you know it's interesting to me about Wells Cargo. So three different generations with your kids starting a fourth generation. Is the company culture under your leadership different from your predecessors? Oh my goodness, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, and I and I think I think current day demands that Dan from from um, my my father, uh, who was also my best friend and my mentor, who who passed a few months ago, um, was was really the the dictatorial leader. You know, I mean, he was he was a big imposing man, had had a huge presence, and really managed through fear and intimidation and and you know I found that that I I more so want to lead through love and compassion than fear and intimidation and and that fear and intimidation doesn't work so well there's still people that do that and I get it and it just it, you know for me it's disingenuous to treat people differently than I would want to be treated yeah, no, I love that, and and I, I I personally agree with you. I think that you know when you care about people and they feel that, what do they want to give you? Everything, not because they have to, because they want to. And there's a difference. And uh, so, how do you when when a new employee comes to Wells Cargo? Uh, help me understand, like how do you how do you teach them the culture of the organization, or do they just kind of fit in? Do how, when you're interviewing through the process, and then you get them on board, how do you talk to them about it? Is is it by I mean, I, I know you have a gym in the office. I love that. I mean, you, you know, you seem like there's some big trucks outside. I mean, there's a lot of fun going on there. You know, you got Nerf gun wars going on. I don't know what's happening at this company. I mean, I loved it. I loved every part of it, I have to admit, when I saw it. But, um, you know, talk to me about that. Like, how do you, how does the new employee understand the culture of the organization? And, and it's, it's certainly not, not a perfect test, but, but 90, 90% of it happens in the interview process. Um, uh, we we interview very very carefully um, and and generally before we bring somebody on board. Now this is in the in the office more so than in the field, but um, in the office they go through at least three interviews uh, to to find out as best we can if they're a cultural fit. Uh, we you know it, it goes back to uh, hire slow and fire fast. And we really want to take our time and, and make sure that we get the right people. 
and with basic the basic skills that we need, but we can certainly teach them above those. But we we really and excuse me and we really take our time in the interview process. That doesn't always work. Sometimes we sometimes we get somebody in here that that you know over time their true colors come out and they just interviewed very well. And in that case, we you know we we start looking for for somebody that is a cultural fit. So so I have to dig a little bit deeper though. Let me let because I, I want I, I want to. So I mean, do you, are there personality tests involved? Like what you know is it multiple interviews? Are there certain people that you trust to interview them? I mean, look, how do you get that person? Because I know a lot of my listeners, we have to interview on a, a regular basis, or you have to deal with that. What's your process? You know, in in through Vistage, which I know you're familiar with, Dan, um, we we've developed a a interview process that is again it's it's three different days. It's not three interviews on one day. It's it's three different days, and we pare down the candidates um, based on the questions we ask. We do not do a, a personal personality profile um, based on based on the job description that we're looking for. So so most of it, and then. Once they come in, it, it usually doesn't take 30 to 45 days um, to to see this person's really engaging. They're really they're really fun, and and we sit down and talk to them, uh, the executives and and the the individual that they answer to sits down and says, hey, you know what's going on? How you doing? We have um, part of the onboarding process is uh, there's a group that takes them to lunch here for, at the end of their first week, um, and you know we have we have their cards, we have their computer set up, so when they when they initially come on board, they feel like they're cared for. It's not just like oh hey welcome aboard, uh, go sit over in that cubicle over there. It's it, it's it's more of a process where they feel accepted, and they feel a part of who we are at the onset. And what they do with it from that point is is theirs. But we've had we've had very good success with that. Not perfect, but good. No, that's great. That's great. And I appreciate you sharing that. So I know your daughter works at Wells Cargo, and now your son. So will you share with me how how have you integrated the kids into the business? How have you helped them find their way? And you know how have you balanced your kids coming into the company with the feelings and perceptions of other employees regarding nepotism and all that? Because I mean, there are a lot of family-owned businesses that have to deal with this. What's your process? For and and it was two completely different processes. Um, I'll go I'll go to my son first because he's the easiest. Um, my son started working at the company like I did when he was uh, when he was 13 years old, and and he started by pulling weeds around the yard and driving a pickup on site because obviously he wasn't allowed to uh, drive off site. He didn't have his license, and and you know, I guess it starts with a foundation of work ethic, and and I. I keep in my mind going back, but it starts with a foundation of work ethic. And my son learned at a very early age that, you know, when you go out and you do a good job and you work your tail off, you make darn good money. So that really started the foundation for him. And through those years became kind of the unintended consequence. I can't say I planned it, but all the guys that work here saw him doing that. And he has already earned their respect by by being that kid that was there every day, was never late. Um, but that again comes from his work ethic that that uh, at some point I must have instilled in him. Maybe maybe when he was uh, 13. But uh, 
So that was my son, and my daughter really didn't want anything to do with the company. She never wanted to work summers here. Um, and as she got older, uh, she came, became more interested in the company and more interested in being a part of the company. So when she graduated from college um, at U of A, she she went to work in her in her field of study and um, and really found that that was not her passion. And she was actually going to go to work for another company, um, uh, another partner company that that we have and. My wife sat down with her and said, don't you think your dad would at least like to know that you're interested in construction? And she said, well, yeah. So we onboarded her the same way that we did Bo. We started her at a very low level uh, at the scale house weighing trucks and then had her follow the scale tickets into the office. And each one of these steps was was several months. Um, and, And so she got to see the whole process from beginning to end and work in every one of those every one of those areas uh, to find out what she was really passionate about and what she really enjoyed. Yeah, that's I love that, and 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 I think that it is important for people to see that hey, people are willing to work. That you don't just walk in and take ownership. Um, and just like you did when you started at fourteen and ran a, did a lot of different positions and and proved your work ethic. That's awesome. I, I what advice do you, would you give other family run businesses? I mean, if you just had to give like some blanket advice to family run businesses, what would you say to them? Well, the only reason the only reason that that I really that that I really feel like I maybe maybe have a leg up on this situation is because we did it all wrong in the last generation. <laughs> so so. Um, and and this do, this doesn't go for everybody, but this is what I saw in the last generation that didn't work, and and that was uh, that was entitlement, and and some of that bled over into into my generation as well, Dan, but uh, but entitlement, you know, people that get paychecks for doing nothing, um, I, I think it diminishes their self worth to to receive a paycheck for getting nothing, and and. I'm a huge advocate of idle hands or the devil's playground because I know that applies to me very, very strongly. So I think when you just give money money for nothing, that that it, it creates a lot of bad behavior and a lot of uh, resentment. And, um, and basically entitlement, you know, and then all of a sudden they feel like they are entitled. So maybe when times get tough and the check isn't so big, now now they're now, now the other family members are mad at you because you didn't do it right, you didn't try hard enough, you didn't work hard enough, whatever that comes to be. And, and all the while they're, they're sitting at home collecting a, a paycheck with mailbox money. But, and communication. And communication is absolutely paramount in any family business. I have a once-a-week meeting with both my kids. We sit down in my office and nothing, nothing is off-base. Everything is on the floor, and whether it's personal, professional, when, once a week we sit down and we make sure that the air is clear so we have a good week. Yeah, that's that's great. And so let me ask you, I mean, I have to ask, so so was there a time when you felt entitled? I mean, you, you kind of mentioned it in your generation. Did you ever feel that, or did you um, just work hard because that's the way you're brought up? In, in my generation, it was it was a, another sibling that was that was uh, that was largely entitled. Um, uh, not me, but, but another, uh, another sibling, uh, in, in my, in my line, if you will, that, that, uh, became entitled and, 
and you know that spurs so many negatives, which I don't want to get caught yeah, up of on. Yeah, course, negative, no, I... But it's, it's jealousy, it's anger, it's it's frustration, and and probably probably jealousy would be the would be the the worst of all those because within entitlement embodies all those all those things that that people come to feel, and once they feel that way, they're just you're, you're just never going to get them on your side. Yeah, it's 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 poison from all directions. Yeah, no, it, that is that is strong, and you know, and th- that leads directly into this next part, this this last part of kind of our conversation, which is legacy. So you know, we're talking about learning, we talk about leadership from a legacy pr- perspective. Um, l- let me let me ask you, what what's the best business or life advice that you would give your your grandkids, kids or grandkids, like just from life life advice. You kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I just want to be specific here. Like, what would you give them? And, and it's it's basically the same thing that I gave my kids. I don't care if you come to work for the company. I don't I don't care what you do in your life. There's a million ways to make a million dollars. Pick one that you love. Just pick one that you love. And and you know, as redundant as that is, everybody says you know if if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. Well, because it's true. It's absolutely true. If I am happier today coming into the office every day than I was 15 years ago. And thank goodness that I just had the sheer tenacity to, to, to muscle through uh, the things that, uh, that, that we went through back then to get to where I am today because I love what I do. I'm excited about what I do. I'm excited about our customers and our customer base. Um, and we, we just, just have fun. Have fun. And if you're not having fun, not not in a not in a microscopic sense, but if you're not having fun, you got to you got to find something else to do. Because again, life life is a game that's meant to be played happy. So if you're not happy, change it. You know, there's a great video on YouTube, Alan Watts. What do you desire? And and I encourage my listeners to to have their kids watch it. They should watch it because really, what it says is, you know, what, better to live a short life doing things you love than a long life miserable. And so, you know, find what you love, master it. And there will be enough crazy people on this planet that will pay you to be the master. And it shows like a snowboarder and a person playing video games. The next thing you know, the snowboarder's tattooed with sponsorships and, you know, they, they, they can make money doing it. So love that, completely love it. I mean, you know, and, and I think that, you know, to continue on with the legacy piece, you know that both of us believe that practice, you know, in practice that business can create value for communities. Can you describe for me how Wells Cargo adds value to society and the community which it operates? Like, what is your, what is your company's big why? You talked about yours, but what is your company's big why, like beyond profit? Well, again, it's it's to make a difference. It's to make a difference and to create opportunities for others to become the best that they they can become. Um, so we get involved in uh, one one of the interesting things that I did a few years back is is each one of my key executives. I, I said the company will give you five thousand dollars to to the uh, uh, to the uh, uh, benefit of your choice, uh, whatever it is. And the only thing that I the, the only caveat to that is that you have to be on the board. You have to be an active participant. You can't just you can't just pick one and say, okay, here's five grand, and I'm not going to be involved. It has to be something that that you're passionate enough about that you want to be involved on a board level or on some on some large level uh, or higher level, I should say. Um, so, 
you know that really opened my eyes. We've got we've got one gentleman that's 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 heavily involved in St. Jude's. Um, I was heavily involved in uh, Habitat for Humanity. Um, so you know that that was cool because they picked things that I wouldn't have picked. So and and it's completely up to them. Um, so for, from that standpoint, I think that makes a bigger footprint for us in the community by having our leaders be leaders somewhere else. And and also for me to, to me to step into that as well. By the way, what a great way to give back to the community and, and, and make a difference. And especially because if they are leaders, that means they have the chance to then be that leader in the other organization. They have that skill set. They have that ability. And so you're just you're paying it forward. Really appreciate that. Uh, so how do you maintain balance between work and, and your personal life and be present where you need to be? Um, I, I think to to pare that down is is just to say that 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 that's a moving target. That that's something that I have to work on every single day. And and sometimes sometimes I have to work on being present at home. And sometimes I have to work at being present at work. So it it, it it really it, it it's really not a constant uh, balance and there i don't believe there is such thing as balance i think that you know when i when i need more energy at work i have to bring that to work and obviously um there's times when that when that leaves me with less energy at home um so i really it it, it it's just something that i have to work on and focus on every day it's it's not a it's not a constant and there certainly isn't anything as that I would call a true balance. I do try to take time uh, with my wife, and and um, and I call it disappear. But uh, I try to disappear at least for a few days a month, so me and her can have our connected time, and and she feels like I'm really there, and I am there, and that's when I'm really present with her, and and get our balance back, and and I try not to be as focused on work when we're, when I'm away from work. And I think everyone listening would agree that it's a moving target for all of us, that this is never a perfect year, but that all we can do is try to be present when we need to be, both at home and at work. And speaking of that, you brought up your wife, Jody, right? Um, you, you and Jody have been married for 30 years. You have two grown children. I've met them. They seemed articulate, extremely bright, sharp, professional. I was so impressed, I have to admit. So what was your parenting strategy? <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, uh, I guess our parenting strategy in the beginning was I told my wife, I said, we need to get a dog. We need to get a puppy, and if we can raise a puppy, we'll have kids. <laughs> That's great. Thank goodness we got a good puppy, and, and we ended up having kids. But, but truly, there, there were a lot of things that, that we learned from, and I don't mean to say that, that I treat my kids like puppies, but but there was a lot of there was a lot of lessons in raising a puppy and in how Jody and I um, how we came together and decided you know what was okay for the puppy to do what wasn't what are the boundaries and and really we we just took those lessons into our parenting and said you know it's important to have discipline it's important to have boundaries um, it's important to have children that respect others as well as themselves and. And and really, I, I'd love to say that I knew that going into it, Dan, but I really didn't, and and neither did Jody. I mean, you know, they swaddle up a little baby and they give it to you at the hospital and send you home, and it's like, oh my gosh, what do I do with these diapers? What, 
I, I can't swaddle a baby like they did it in the hospital. So it, it was just it was a progression of of all of my core values and Jody's core values to uh, to really uh, step into it. Jody worked when we were young and we were married and didn't have kids, and we both made the decision that when we had kids, we wanted her to be a stay-at-home mom so the kids would would be able to, you know, have somebody that they come home to every day from school and picks them up from school. I think that was, and, and that doesn't work for everybody, but for us, that was just such a such a precious moment. And Jody asked uh, asked uh, our son, Bo, what, what is your fondest memory of your childhood? And he said, Mom, my fondest memory of childhood is when you used to pick me up from school and take me to the park, and we'd go to the park and play. And, you know, that that really, to me, sums it up. I Jody is a wonderful mother, a committed mother, and she did a phenomenal job of raising our children. And, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about this a little bit. You know, I had three hours in the evening after work to, to really be there and be present, and weekends, but... Uh, yeah, that was it was just it was being there and loving them unconditionally and supporting them through their challenges and and hopefully showing them that they have uh that they have value and they bring value and that's something that we continue to do with them. You know, it's interesting. I have a business mentor Ron Bailey and Ron said he thinks parenting is 90% just showing up, just being there, just being, you know, letting them know you care that you want care who their friends are and who the parents of your friends are, their friends are and that really matters. So that that goes back to that whole park um, analogy and, and and story. So I appreciate you bringing that up. You know, I believe that we ought to go through life with one hand extended up for help from those who are a little further along than us in life, and one hand extended down to help others who are coming along in life behind us. But can you name a person? Like, who's the person that had a significant impact on you as a leader? Maybe a mentor, someone who offered their hand down to you. Describe this person. Um, I would I would say it, it was my dad, and and albeit you know I talked about his management style being different than mine. I also believe that there's something that we can learn from everybody, and uh, some people teach us how to be, some people teach us how not to be. But my dad left me with a lot of really, really valuable lessons and valuable insights. He had an incredible work ethic. He had incredible drive. Um, you know he fought the family fight from my grandfather's generation to his generation. Um, so although I wasn't involved in that, I, I still saw snippets of, of what that looked like. And, and so, you know, as I was coming forward, he was just, he was always there and, and he always made one rule that, that no matter, no matter, let's see, how do I want to say this? Irregardless of, of, whether it was him and me, um, he never had anybody's sibling work directly for their father. And I carry that on today. And, and I think that's really valuable that I never worked directly for my dad. I always had somebody else that I reported to, and then they went to my dad and then, and then came back to me. So, uh, you know, I still, still carry that today. Bo and Sierra do not answer to me. They answered to one of the vice presidents in the company, and uh, and that's and th- so those become their mentors. And then as as I became more and more entrenched in the company, my uh, my dad 
would would start passing things by me more directly. And then after probably ten years in the company, maybe twelve, he started he started we started more of a direct relationship. But we already had that that platform of what it looked like. Yeah, I'm actually glad you brought that up. I think some of our listeners who have family-owned businesses will find that statement and that that situation very, very helpful. Uh, So in that same vein, in my speeches, I asked the audience to answer the question, a deep question, how will your children describe you to their children? What will your legacy be? So Guy Wells, right now, in your wildest fantasy, how would you want to be described? Oh, gosh, Dan. Um, what words would they use? What, you know, it could be a couple sentences, some words, like how, you know, how would they want to be described? Loving, caring, fun, like what words would you want? What, how would you want to be described? Um, whew. you know, that's funny. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's somewhat like writing your own obituary. And unfortunately that's a little bit fresh in my heart right now, but, um, I, I, I would say loving, caring, um, um, had had a wonderful relationship with God and and uh, hardworking, driven, visionary, loving, compassionate, giving, and and it keeps coming up in our conversation. Present, present. Yeah. That that I was present for them and and gave them everything that I had. And gave them everything I had, not from a monetary standpoint, but an emotional standpoint. Gave them everything that I, that I, that I had, and everything that they needed from an emotional standpoint, which, I guess, goes back to love. You know, a deep sense of love and and uh, and belief. Yeah, and and after meeting your kids, I mean, clearly you're on the path to getting that answer. So I congratulate you for that. You know, Guy, thanks for your time today. Uh, first of all, thanks for your willingness to be authentic and transparent. And I, and I really appreciate this because it's a window into what it takes to lead a successful company. And I'm confident that my listeners have a few more nuggets on how to be better equipped to tackle the challenges that leaders face every day as they try to lead their families and their businesses with greater purpose, direction, and optimism. Guy, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely, Dan. Thank you for having me, and 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 I hope that I hope that this touches many lives. But but if it touches one, then then our time was well spent. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please remember to subscribe to the show. Don't just listen; subscribe. This will help others discover us. And please, as a personal favor to me, write a review. When you subscribe to the Garage to Goliath podcast and write a review, it boosts our ratings. Ratings in turn help others find this show. Please also share the podcast with friends and family so together we can take our next Garage to Goliath step. 